series in the book of Jeremiah. If you've been here regularly, you'll know that we took a break for the summer period. This is actually the 20th in our studies. You may think this is a long time, but believe me, trying to tackle two whole chapters of Jeremiah is quite an undertaking. Uh, But with God's help, we hope to be able to continue that and conclude uh, this series uh, by, God willing, in December sometime, if the Lord tarries. So let me say something by way of introduction this morning. If you were to draw a graph of your life thus far, time on the horizontal axis and experiences on the vertical axis, I wonder what it would look like. Maybe those peaks represent passing of an exam, wedding, birth of a child. And those troughs a disappointment, an illness, the loss of a loved one. So let me ask you two further questions this morning. Where are you this morning on the grass as you sit here in Charlotte Chapel? You on a peak? Filled with joy? In a trough? Filled with despair? Or somewhere in the middle just kind of coasting along? The second question. As you look to the future this morning, today, the, whatever it is, 19th of August, 2007, where do you see the graph of your life heading from here onwards? Are you filled with anticipation? Do you believe that the best days of your life still lie ahead? Or are you filled with foreboding? Believing that the peaks, the high peak of your life, is in the past. You've already passed it. And nothing is ever going to match that again in the future. Well, in a congregation of several hundred people, probably seven or eight hundred of us here this morning, I guess there'll be a whole range of answers. And maybe, for some of you, I'm sorry, it's probably a painful thought just to even think about those kind of questions. And those range of answers will be determined by all sorts of variables. Your personal circumstances, your age, your temperament. It's very rare for a whole community of people to give the same answers to both questions. But it's not impossible. Some 2,600 years ago, in the little nation of Judah, in the Middle East, the people there, the whole nation, every member of the population, found themselves at the lowest point on their graph and with no prospects whatsoever for the future. Just 400 years back in their history, They had been members of a mighty empire under King David and his son Solomon. But a disastrous civil war had split the nation in two. The kingdom of Israel, the larger part in the north, with its capital city of Samaria, had rapidly headed downwards 
under a succession of bad kings. Finally being overrun in the year 722 BC, by our later dating of course, by the superpower of Assyria. And he was wiped off the map. The kingdom of Judah, the smaller southern half, with its capital in the city of Jerusalem, struggled on for another century and a half. The occasional peak under a good king had not arrested its terminal decline. And for the last 40 years of its existence, a brave man, a prophet called Jeremiah, had warned them, change your ways or you face disaster. But his words had fallen on deaf ears until finally what he had predicted came true. After a terrible siege lasting months, the city of Jerusalem finally fell to the armies of Babylon. City and temple were looted, raised to the ground, and the survivors were herded together for deportation. So that was the city situation in the nation of Judah some 2,600 years ago. At the lowest point imaginable in their national existence with no prospects whatsoever, humanly speaking, for the future. The people of Judah were in the depths of despair. And as you read what Jeremiah wrote about this time and prophesied, recorded in the book that bears his name, you can see that in some of the emotions described. First of all, fear. The prophet describes strong men groaning in pains like women who are pregnant and going into labour. Jeremiah 30, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see a strong man with his, with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labour, every face turned deathly pale? Added to that is despair. There is no hope of healing. No help. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause. No remedy for your sore. No healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. And indescribable grief. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Ramah was a little place five miles north of Jerusalem and the Babylonians used it as a holding camp before they separated families and deported them into slavery. And so the picture is like Rachel of old, one of the wives of the patriarch who lost her son in childbirth, weeping, you can imagine mothers, their children being torn from their arms and sold into slavery. A dreadful scene of despair. It's a picture of what the Lord said would happen. Each time, did you notice, this is what the Lord says. But, it was not all that the Lord said. For his word through Jeremiah is, above all else, a message of hope. We've chosen a title for this series, Living in Hope. And this hope shines against such a terribly dark background. In his book of sermons on Jeremiah, we recommend that if you want a good book on Jeremiah, a series of sermons by American Philip Riken, preached through Jeremiah, twice the number of sermons we're attempting to do, about 55, I think. Uh, this is what he says. It finally happened. For decades, Jeremiah had prophesied judgment 
upon God's people. Over and over again, he said God would punish them with sword, famine and captivity. He turned out to be right. Jeremiah knew what he was prophesying about. In the year 597 BC, the Babylonians swooped down, attacked Jerusalem, killing many, carrying most of the rest into exile. But, he says, when judgment finally arrived, something remarkable happened. Jeremiah changed his tune. The next several chapters are filled with some of the most wonderful promises in all of Scripture. After 28 chapters of gloom and doom, which we preached through the whole of this year, Jeremiah came bearing tidings of grace and glory. And if you were here for the last in our series, we looked at chapter 29, which contains our verse for the year, the verse that probably the only verse most people know in Jeremiah these days. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So, at this lowest point, the Lord is saying to his people, as it were, this is the title we've chosen, just pause a moment, things look bad, but I want to tell you, the best is yet to be. And if you remember nothing else about this message this morning, I simply want to say to you, no matter where you are, if you belong to God's people, relying on God's word, trusting in God's Son, no matter where your circumstances are, I want to assure you that the best is yet to be. It's a message of hope. Now, we have two chapters to look at. We'll help if you turn then to Jeremiah 30 and 31. Sixty-four verses. I'm not going to go through them in detail, otherwise we'll just carry on till the evening service, I think. But, um, let's get a feel for it. These are such wonderful words, and I want you to still think in your mind, think where these people are at and with their situation, this absolute terrible despair. And maybe this is God's word for someone here this morning particularly. All right? All right let's read 31. It's, it's a great chapter. Page 791. It will help to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, don't worry. There are Bibles in the pews. Just grab one. I'll turn around and ask someone to pass you one because we're going to look at the text in closer detail in a moment. The Lord is looking to the future. At that time, the days are coming, says the Lord. At that time, declares the Lord, I'll be the God of all the clans of Israel. They'll be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come and give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again you'll take up your tambourines. Go out to dance with the joyful. Again you'll plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There'll be a day when the watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I'll bring them from the land of the north. Gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. 
I'll lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hands of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They'll be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They'll return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I've surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf. I've been disciplined. Restore me and I'll return because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I speak often against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs. Put up guideposts. Take note of the highway. The road that you take. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to your towns. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words, The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns. Farmers and those who move about with their flocks, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the children have eaten sour grapes, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother say, Know the Lord. Because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. 
Only if the heavens above can be measured and the fountains of the earth below be searched out will I reject the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will be stretched from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then turn to Goa, the whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. This is the word of the Lord. Now it's a long reading but it's just amazing words given the circumstances of the people. Now let me try and summarise what the prophet is saying in these two chapters and try and stay with me because we'll come back at the end to the final conclusion and to our own personal circumstances this morning. If you ask the people of Israel to look back on the graph of national life then there would be two high peaks situated very close together the high points in their history. And they were these. First of all, the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and then soon after they came out of Egypt, the covenant, the agreement that the Lord made with them on Mount Sinai when he promised that they would be his people. And for the people of Israel, if if you ask them to look back, they would say, those are the high peaks. They'll never again be repeated, particularly at the point we're focusing on when the Babylonians have swept in. Now, I think what the Lord is saying here in these chapters through the prophet Jeremiah is he's describing their future prospects and he's saying there are two events coming which will far surpass them. There'll be a new exodus, which is the focus of chapter 30 through to chapter 31 halfway through, and secondly, a new covenant chapter 31, 27 through to the end. And I want to focus on these two themes and I hope you can stay with me as we look at them. Now, when the Lord says he's going to do something new, it doesn't mean new in the sense of original. Two words for new, one means original, one means new in quality. So, to take an example, a good example, new labour claims that it's better than old labour, but it's still labour. Well, we won't go into the details of this, but that's what the claim is. New Purcell is supposed to be better than old Purcell. Although when they were selling old Purcell, they didn't tell you it was bad. They just say, now new Purcell is better. Now, that's a trivial example. But where God is concerned, there's never any doubt. God is the God who makes all things new. That is, he always does things good, and whatever he does in the future, he does it even better. That's why it's called new. So, look at these two themes with me. The the Exodus one is implicit. The the New Covenant is very explicit in these verses. Uh, The first Exodus, of course, was this remarkable event where God's people were in slavery in Egypt and God led them out through uh, Moses. Now the Lord promises to do something similar, but even greater. For he says he's going to rescue his scattered people. They're not clumped together in one place, Egypt. If you look at the text, it actually says he's going to rescue his people, Israel and Judah, and from the ends of the earth. There's going to be a mighty return from captivity. Uh, Two related words are used to describe this, ransomed and redeemed. Uh, Both convey the idea of setting someone free. If you look at the text in chapter 31, they're used together in verse 10 that we read. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. 
proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them, will watch over his flock like a shepherd, for the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. So having described that terror and pain of grown men acting like they were pregnant women in labor, the Lord promises you'll be saved from that. You'll be ransomed and redeemed from slavery. And that day, declares the Lord, I'll break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Verse 8 of chapter 30. And like the Egyptians who were frustrated, you remember, when they tried to stop the Israelites leaving, God promises victory for his people over their enemies. But all who devour you will be devoured, all your enemies will go into exile, those who plunder you will be plundered, all who make spoil of you I'll despoil. And not only does the Lord promise they'll be ransomed, redeemed, rescued as it were, he also promises restoration. Yes, he says, the wounds that you suffer are incurable. Your illness is beyond healing. But I'm the one who wounded you because of your sins, and I'm the Lord who can heal you and restore you. Verse 17 of chapter 30. I'll restore you to health, will heal your wounds. And the Lord promises I'll restore you also to prosperity back in your own land. This is what the Lord says, this is chapter 30 verse 18. I'll restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt and her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. And most important of all, the Lord says I'll restore you to the relationship you once enjoyed with me. Chapter 31, the opening verses. At that time declares the Lord, I'll be the God of all the clans of Israel, they'll be my people. This is what the Lord says, the people who survive the sword will find favour in the desert, I will give rest to Israel. So the exodus means rescue, ransomed and redeemed, means restoration, but of course it means a journey, they'll have to get back. So there's the theme of return as well. So those weeping in Ramah at that transit camp are told to dry their eyes because there is a future hope. They will return to their own land. Verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They'll return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And this is wonderful picture. The Lord will restore his people. They'll return from the ends of the earth. Verse 8 of chapter 31. See, I'll bring them from the lands of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. It's this wonderful picture, not just be fit people racing along the, the highway. They'll be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labour. A great throng will return. They'll be weeping. They'll pray as I bring them back. It's a wonderful picture. But at the heart of it must be a return to the Lord. I've surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You discipline me like an unruly calf. I've been disciplined. Restore me and I'll return because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my my youth. So ransomed and redeemed, restored, returning to the Lord, there's this great promise of a new exodus. God is going to do something even greater than the past. But you ask yourself, and I'm sure Jeremiah did, is it too good to be true? I'm intrigued by verse 26. Jeremiah says, At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. Have you ever woken up from a dream, a very pleasant dream, and then you come back to reality and thought that was just a dream? Well, it's better than dreaming, having a nightmare, I suppose. But but as Jeremiah wakens up from his sleep, he looks around, and it's a nightmare scenario. His people have been carted up into exile. 
The city is in smoldering ruins. The temple is destroyed. Is it just a dream? But then the Lord speaks to him again and offers new message of new hope. Not just a new exodus, but a new covenant. If you've been in this series, right at the beginning, we focused on Jeremiah's commission. The Lord gave him a commission. He appointed him to uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow, to build and to plant. And for 40 years, he spent his time uprooting, tearing down, destroying and overthrowing. It's the most terrible ministry. Can you imagine 40 years of having to preach a message of judgment? Some of you have struggled with 19 sermons for six months. Imagine 40 years of this. If we preached through Charlotte Chapel for 40 years, a message of judgment. I don't think there'd be so many people here this morning at the end of that. But there is good news at last. Look at it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when here's the, I'm going to plant the house of Israel, the house of Judah, with the offspring of men and animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I'm now going to watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And at the heart of this planting is this new agreement that God is going to make with his people. The original covenant was made by the Lord, given through Moses, you know the story on Mount Sinai, the start of the journey through the desert, And in it, the Lord promised he would bless his people, prosper them, give them this land overflowing with milk and honey. For their part, they were to love the Lord and to please him and to do what he said for their good and the benefit of their society. Now, the Lord says, it's necessary for me to make a new covenant. And you ask, what was wrong with the old covenant? Well, it had failed. And the old covenant failed, not because it was intrinsically bad, because everything God makes is good. It failed because the people were bad. Probably if they'd had it in those days, it would be the Guinness Book of Records for breaking a covenant. Because while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the covenant, the people were already breaking it down below by indulging in immorality, gross immorality and idolatry. And while the Lord forgave them, they had this intrinsic problem. They just kept breaking the covenant. They kept going their own way. So the Lord says, it's necessary for me to make a new covenant. Verse 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, it will not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So, how will the new covenant differ? How will it be better than the old one? Well, the promises of the new covenant are evidence of God's amazing love. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. And this new covenant is a better covenant for two reasons. Try and stay with it because what we're going to discover is that we are living in the age of the new covenant. We're God's new covenant people if we belong to Christ. First of all, he promises regeneration. That means a new heart from God. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. You see, the weakness of the old covenant lay in the weakness of human nature. Not only that human beings were unable to keep God's law, but also they were unwilling to keep God's law, preferring to go their own way. So God promises to change the mind and heart and will of his people so that they will want to do what pleases God, that they will love to do what pleases God, 
and they'll be able to do what pleases God. Now, that is a remarkable thing that God is promising here. Because if you struggle to be a good person and do what you know to be right, even by your own standards, you'll know how easily you fail. And, and the strange thing is as well is, is it not true how easily, not only that we do this, but we enjoy doing it. And even though it brings us misery, we persist in doing it. There's a fundamental problem here. God promises to change the mind and heart and will of his people so they'll want to do what pleases God, love to do what pleases God, be able to do what pleases God. And only God can do this. Only God can make a covenant which is written in human nature. Any attempt to please God by our own efforts is doomed to fail. You see, this morning you may not be a Christian. You may say, well, I'm doing my best and I'm sure God marks on a curve and I'll probably be okay come the day when I stand before God or whatever. Now, God says his standard is perfection and all of us have fallen short. That remarkable incident, if you know the New Testament, when a very religious man came to see Jesus, Jewish, Orthodox, strict, Pharisee. And he said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What have I got to do to get in? To qualify before God? And Jesus turned to him and he said, you must be born again. It didn't make any sense to him. He said, what do you mean I can't go back in my mother's womb? Jesus said, no, no. You must be born again of the Spirit. Only by a new birth, a new nature, can you ever hope to get in the kingdom. And only God can do that by His Spirit the first thing this covenant promises. Along with it is another long word. We've been looking at these if you've been with us over the summer in our evening series, Aspects of Love. Reconciliation, a new relationship with God. He says, no longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Yes, he says, people will be personally accountable for their own sin, but there'll be a personal and intimate knowledge of God. Jesus spoke about it. This is eternal life. To know you the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 17 verse 3. It's a promise of a new and personal and intimate relationship with God from the least to the greatest. Whoever you are this morning, no matter how smart you may be or not be, no matter what your education, your background, your wealth, no matter what you may have done in the past, God promises through this new covenant a new and intimate relationship with Him which gives you hope for the future. And the Lord says this is absolutely certain. This new covenant will never be superseded. There's not going to be another even better one. As we get in the adverts, you know, I'm just waiting for the even better new dads, you know, or person, whatever it might be. no. There are two covenants. The old one, which was good. The new one, which is better. It is a final eternal covenant. So it's an eternal covenant for the people of God. Last verses of chapter 35. He says, I'll never reject them. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured, the foundation of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. It's an eternal covenant for the city of God. Last verse, this city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Now, we're coming towards the end. There's been a lot of material in there and I'm, I'm aware of that. I see some glazed eyes looking at me, but just try and stay with me because this is really important. 
It's a message of hope for you this morning. At your low point. Or those of you who think the best is yet to be and you've got your career set in front of you and whatever it might be. This is far better. You will be disappointed in anything else. This is God's future hope. The people of Israel assured the best is yet to be. So, did it happen, you ask yourself? What about the fulfilment of these promises? Well, if you know the story, there was a new exodus. Seventy years, as God had said through Jeremiah, the Persian king Cyrus suddenly took it upon himself, prompted by God and known to him, to allow the Jewish people to return back to their land. And so an exodus of people began returning to the land, rebuilding the walls. You can read it in books like Nehemiah, Haggai, building the temple. Five more centuries pass before the inauguration of the new covenant on the night when Jesus, the Son of God, made flesh, met with his disciples. They met for a Passover meal, celebrating that old covenant. And Jesus gave it a new meaning. You know he quoted from Jeremiah, or referred to it. He took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a costly covenant sealed with his blood when he died on the cross the next day taking the wrath of God bearing our sin so that we might know the forgiveness Jeremiah prophesied about and all the blessings of that covenant are now promised to people today we're a new covenant church we're a new covenant people in Charlotte Chapel not the building but the people the message we proclaim so on the day of Pentecost the Apostle Peter tells the people here's how you get the new blessings of the covenant Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, yeah, you Jews, and for your children, and for those who are far off, you Gentiles, in distant Scotland. The gospel will come to you for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, I am getting near the end. It's just the final climax, but let me stop at this point and ask you, are you enjoying the blessings of the new covenant? To use a corny phrase, abused phrase, but it's a biblical phrase because Jesus used it. Have you been born again of the Spirit of God? Does God by His Spirit live within you? Have you been reconciled to God? Can you say, I know Him personally? I have a relationship with Him. His Spirit and the Holy Spirit within me witnesses His Spirit that I belong to Christ, that I'm His child. Do you know the forgiveness of sin? Do you belong to God's people? This is the great hope and prospect. And if you look in the graph of your life, if I look back in the graph of my life, a long time ago now, the high point in my life was in 1961, January the 14th. Some of us don't know the date, but that doesn't matter. I do. As a teenager, I came to Christ. Put my trust in Him. Receive the blessings of the new covenant. Can you look back and to that? We sing about that happy day. If not, maybe today is your day. Nothing would, just nothing would be greater. If you don't know Christ, then this morning, you turn from your sin, you repent, you put your trust in Christ, and this remarkable transformation takes place. God transforms you by His Spirit, makes you His child, forgives your sin, and you know what it is to belong to God's people. It's just amazing. But, but there's something better. Just stay with me for just a few minutes. 
this is not the final fulfilment. For all that Jeremiah promised has not yet been finally completed. And that's why for you, if you belong to Christ, the best is still yet to be. And of course it's described right at the end of the Bible in the last book of the Bible. And I'm just going to refer to it and I invite you to think about it and reflect on it, especially if you're at a low point or whenever you're at a low point. And if you're at a high point to say, this is far higher than anything I can ever conceive. All right, the final fulfilment. First of all, for the gathered people of God. You see, when Nehemiah and people like him came back to Israel and rebuilt, it was a partial fulfilment of what God had said. But it was not the vast in gathering from the ends of the earth which Jeremiah prophesied. No, that promise is being fulfilled as the good news of Jesus went out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The people of God are being gathered in from the four corners of the earth and the book of Revelation has this wonderful picture of what it's going to be like. John says, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the final fulfilment. That's what we're looking forward to. The best is yet to be. That's why we sent out our missionary family. That's why we go out into Edinburgh. Why we have a festival. Why we're a fringe event. Because we want to see people gathered into God's people from the ends of the earth. And we still await the final fulfilment of the eternal city of God. You see, the city was rebuilt. But that wasn't the fulfilment. The final fulfilment. Why do I know that? Because of the last verse of Jeremiah 31, the city will never again be uprooted or demolished. In 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was uprooted. It was demolished. Did God's promise fail? No. See, God's got a different Jerusalem. Apostle Paul calls it in Galatians, the Jerusalem that is above. And the last book of the Bible describes it. This is the future prospect. The best is yet to be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Best is yet to be. And there's a final promise to be fulfilled. Jeremiah 30 verse 9, the prophet says, Instead, the people will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, when the people went back to Israel, to the promised land, after the Persian king let them, they never had a king again. No one in the line of David. There's still no king of Israel. They've got a president, a prime minister. They've got a king. But there is a king who reigns of the line of David. King Jesus. And the reign of the king is described in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The best is yet to be the final reign of Christ. 
That is our future hope. The return of the King. And so the book of Revelation, the Bible concludes with these words. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. And God's people who look forward to that say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And God's people who look forward to it say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And if that's your future hope, no matter where you are on the graph of your life at this point, in August 2007, the best is yet to be and will be forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.